Um, all right, kids, uh, you are dismissed for children's worship. Head on over to see Mrs. Perry over there. Um, and while the kids are heading out, I'll tell you, I know uh, if you've been around for a while, you know we've been doing a series on numbers for a while. And we're about to get into the section about uh, grumbling and complaining. Steve said, Joe, on the 31st, you could either preach on that or uh, something else. So I said, I'll go do something else. Um, you can handle that next week. So, uh, so next week uh, in the new year, we will be um, going, we'll continue our series in numbers. This week, we are going to look at a passage in the Bible, in Luke, that is, that talks a lot about the incarnation, the incarnation, what it means that Jesus uh, has come in body, the God himself has come in body. So uh, we're going to look at this passage. Now, uh, before I read it, I'll just give you just one quick little blurb that's right before this, just to put it in context. Y'all know Jesus was born in a manger. We just had a holiday about that, right? You got that. Um, and then in Luke 2, right after that story, there's a story about Mary and Joseph bringing baby Jesus to the temple and they met Simeon and Anna, and it's a beautiful exchange and interchange there. Um, it's a great story. You should go read it afterwards. Um, that's the verses that, pre- that directly precede this. Um, and so let's just go ahead and read this. This is Luke 2, 39 to 52. It's up in, the, in your bulletins and up on the screens behind me. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord... They, being Mary, Joseph, and Jesus, returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon upon him. Now, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. Let me just pause right there just to tell you what's happening. Uh, According to Old Testament law, Jewish men would come to the temple three times a year. Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of the, the Booths or, or Tabernacles. Um, and so maybe Joseph came three times a year, and this is the one time that the whole family came. Like every year, maybe all three of them came. Um, it had sort of become tradition that people, because it's far to travel from all over to come to Jerusalem. So oftentimes, people would come just once a year. So maybe they were just coming once a year. We don't really know. But we do know that they're here In verse 41, now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he, being Jesus, was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. The last little interchange, and then I'll I'll read the rest of it. Um, Just to, again, put it a little bit more in context. Uh, At 12, Jesus had one more year before he would, according to tradition, be considered an adult before he, he would hit his bar mitzvah, before he would be responsible for keeping the law. Thirteen was the common age, uh, not necessarily always uniform, but common. So prepare, to prepare, boys would come before 13. They would come when he's 12, maybe 11, maybe 10. We don't know. Maybe Jesus had come a few years before this. All we know is that Mary and Joseph and Jesus would come once a year, and this one year, when Jesus is 12, they're traveling to, um, to Jerusalem. All right, I'll stop interchanging. Now I'll, I'll finish reading it. Verse 43. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. 
But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Um, we, as, as I'm sure most of you, celebrated Christmas. We just celebrated Christmas and my children received many fun things. One of the things they received were gift cards, gift certificates. Uh, they received gift cards to Amazon, to all these other places. I don't know. Uh, they also received cold, hard cash, you know, just straight up cash. And so, which is great, which is wonderful. And then all that means is the following days, daddy, can we go, can we sign on to Amazon? Daddy, can we go, daddy, can we do this? Daddy, can we sign on to this? I don't want to exaggerate. I'm not one to, for hyperbole. <laughs> but I'm just saying, maybe yesterday, uh, a child of mine said 900 million times, uh, can we go to Best Buy? Can we go to Best Buy? One of my daughters really wanted to buy a robot that she wanted, and apparently she did some search and was on at Best Buy, and so... We ended up going to Best Buy, and she got a robot, and it's all, all exciting. But it was over and over again. Can we go to Best Buy? No, not right now. Ten minutes later, can we go to Best Buy? No, not right now. So to her, it's very literal. Okay, not right now. A minute later, can we go to Best Buy? Uh, that's very silly, funny, um, and annoying. Uh, but that's, that's tenacity, that's tenacity. I'm giving you a big word. Some of you know, some of you don't know. Tenacious, tenaciousness, tenacity. And I'm going to talk about that a lot today. Tenaciousness, being singularly focused, focusing on one thing and doing it over and over again. In a situation like gift cards, it can be super annoying, but it actually is a great thing to have in some situations. Um, a few years ago, I completed this thing called a century bike ride where I was, I actually biked a hundred miles. It was amazing. It was awesome. I trained a long time for it. And then I messed it up at the very beginning because I went out too fast. And so I, I just, I was just so excited, you know, I was just, ah, yay, it's awesome. Like so excited to complete this, never done it before. So I, I go out too fast and, um, I, by mile 50, I was just done. I was tired. That's a problem when you have 50 more miles to go. Um, by mile 60, I was exhausted. By mile 70, I wanted to die. By mile 80, I wanted everyone else in the world to die. <laughs> by mile 90, I didn't care anymore. And I just stayed focused. One foot after another. From that, that 90 mile, from 90 to 100 mile, all I remember was just pedal. One foot, one foot, pedal. If anyone here has done a marathon or anything like that, you know what I'm talking about. You just, 
singularly focused. I don't care how beautiful it is. I don't care who's with me or what's happening. One foot in front of another. Just just one rotation around. Just keep going, keep going. Tenacity, being singularly focused. That's in many ways what this story is about. This is about Jesus's singular focus on what his father had given him to do. And we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit. But the passage today presents us with a problem. If you are a discerning reader or listener, you heard this story, you've read the story before, you've studied it or whatever, and you immediately realize there is a problem. The problem is this. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who Paul says is preeminent over everything, through whom, by whom, and for whom everything was made. Verse 40, he grew and became strong, filled with wisdom. Verse 52, he increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Do you hear the problem here? How do you reconcile this? Doesn't growing in wisdom necessitate a period where you're not 100% wise? Do you hear that? Doesn't increasing in favor with God necessitate a time when he was less than in favor with God? Do you you see where the struggle is in this? I would say that these verses show some things about the incarnation, about what it means that Jesus is incarnate. He is here on earth with us. The first one is Jesus was normal. Uh, Don't over, don't over, just don't fly over that statement. Jesus was normal. He was a normal human. He was a real life human who grew as real humans grow. Now, this is the only story in the Bible that we have, the only story in the Bible that is between the infancy of Jesus and his mission. Okay. The only story in the Bible and this story, along with the concept of who Jesus is as God or man really upset the early church. I mean, if you think about it for those first few years after Jesus's resurrection and ascension, the struggle the church had was telling people Jesus is God. That was the gospel, proclaiming Jesus as God. Well, as the years turned into decades, turned into centuries, people started saying, well, okay, Jesus is God, but was he really a man? Did he really exist? And so the early church made some things up. I wouldn't say the early church, but some people in the early church centuries made some things up. They said, well, okay, um, Jesus, he was so holy and wonderful. There was, there's a story in one of the apocryphal writings that is completely wrong about Jesus molding birds out of clay and then they just transformed into birds. That did not happen. Um, there's other stories about, you know, uh, lions and leopards like worshiping Jesus, like him just walking by and animals bowing down. Tim, I, we, don't, we don't know anything about that. It's weird because people don't understand how is this Jesus was a real person, but also how is he God? It was a struggle that the church had over explaining this or over thinking about it. The second thing uh, that this passage talks about with the incarnation is that this growth was physical. He grew, he became strong. The body is important to Christians. Most people don't get bothered by this fact. Okay, Jesus grew physically. I'm with you on that. Great job. Okay, this is the one that people get really upset about. 
this growth was spiritual. He grew in knowledge and in wisdom. James 3.17, but the wisdom from above is first pure and then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, good fruits, impartial and sincere. What James is saying is that wisdom that Jesus is, is having, that Jesus is, he's growing in these fruits of the Spirit. Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. There was a time when the man Jesus did not know something. Is anyone ready to throw me out yet? That's, that's dangerous. Whoa, wait, 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 wait. You're not trying to trample down on my Jesus, are you, Joe? There was a time when the man Jesus did not know something. I am not taking away from the deity of Jesus in any way. Jesus is, has always been, and will always be the only begotten Son of God, King of the universe, worthy of all worship, respect, and glory, in whose name we pray, that's our Jesus. And yet, at the same time, there was a time when he was a toddler and he didn't know how to speak. There was a time when he was an infant and he could not walk. Think about that. The creator of the universe needed a young teenage mother to feed him, to bathe him, to change him. He humbled himself to the point of needing help to eat, sleep, and everything else that babies do. Jesus needed that. And he grew, he grew spiritually as he grew in that wisdom and that knowledge. And let me explain a bit more. It's like this. Uh, well, I, I'll get to that. Jesus was raised in Nazareth, probably the first great example of um, being humble, being born humble. Uh, small little town. Nothing good came out of Nazareth. That's what one of Jesus' disciples even said before he met Jesus. Does anything good come out of Nazareth? Jesus himself was a zygote. Jesus himself was a tiny infant in utero. Jesus himself was a tiny infant ex utero a tiny toddler, a big toddler, a preschooler, a child, a teenager, a young adolescent, a young adult, and then an adult of late 20s, early 30s when he began his ministry. Jesus grew, but what's different between him and us is that his growth went uninterrupted. Between Jesus and the Father, there was perfect harmony Limitless love. You and I, we grow in knowledge and spirit. We grow in fits and starts. We, that's what we do. We, we grow in wisdom. Oh, okay, I got some wisdom there. And then I rebel completely or I just forget or I just become lazy or I become distracted. Jesus 100% grew with the Father perfectly. The divine nature did not need to be prepared or matured but his human nature did, which then leads me to the great big word that I know you guys woke up this morning to learn about, and that was the hypostatic union. Why are there not cheers? You guys all woke up this morning and were like, you know what really would get my blood going? To talk about the hypostatic union. Yes. Okay, no, no. The hypostatic union, 
all it is. It's a fancy way of saying, understanding the person of Jesus. Who is the person of Jesus? Okay. Um, I, uh, I read this book that some of you have heard of. It's called Alice in Wonderland kidding. All of you have heard of that. If you are American, you probably have heard of that book. Um, I watched the TV miniseries from the eighties and that Jabberwocky still haunts my nightmares. Anyone else? Um, but I read that book, loved the TV miniseries, you know, and all this stuff, read the book, hated the book, absolutely hated the book. I in fact was reading that book to one of my children or to some of my children and I was reading it and I got so frustrated with it. I closed it and threw it away. We're not reading that anymore. And even my girls were like, what, what's, what's going on? Why are you stop reading that? I, I'm not reading that book anymore. The reason, because it's nonsense literature. If you, if you're a literature person, you know about this. Some of you love Alice in Wonderland. I'm so sorry for you. It's nonsense literature. It's like written in a way that is, is supposed to be illogical. That's the point of it. To the, the narrative is illogical. And that's a point, and it's funny for like a page or two. And I, but a whole novel, I can't do it. Sorry, Lewis Carroll. Can't do it. The reason why I'm bringing this up is because when you get into the mystery of the incarnation, you can follow a white rabbit. You really can. You can follow a white rabbit down into Wonderland, and in some cases, you might get confused. We're talking about the mystery of the incarnation, the mystery of who Jesus is, which is important, but if you fall into that maze for too long, you could get lost. So I just, I just want to say, I want to bring up a few points that I think are very important about this nature of Jesus that I think is fascinating, that the church has struggled with, that is immensely practical. But if you want to talk in detail about this and you want to follow me into that rabbit hole, talk to me offline. We can, we can go deep and geek out on those things. But here's, in short, what, um, uh, what the hypostatic union is, or, or at least how the church has tried to figure this out, okay? Um, Did I put... Oh, yeah, Anonymous wrote, he wrote a lot. Anonymous wrote, remaining what he was, he became what he was not. Um, And then the in 451, the Council of Chalcedonia, if you want to talk about that later, let's do that later. In 451, the church got together in the Council of Chalcedonia. They came up with a creed called the Chalcedonian Creed. Some of you are thinking... Why did I wake up this morning and come and hear this? Um, This is not some weird thing that a branch of the church came up with. 99% of all Christians in the world agree with the Chalcedonian Creed. Okay, I'm just being clear. Roman Catholics believe in the Chalcedonian Creed. Eastern Orthodox, they believe in the Chalcedonian Creed. Protestants, we believe in the Chalcedonian Creed. So I'm just saying... This isn't some weird thing. This was in 451. The church said, came together and they said, how can we define this? And here's a summary of the five points, only five, about the Chalcedonian Creed that is what we would affirm. First, Jesus has two natures. He is God and man. Second, each nature is full and complete. He is fully God and fully man. Three, each nature remains distinct. They're different. Four, Christ is only one person. And five, things that are true of only one nature are nonetheless true of the person of Jesus Christ. 
in, in, in modern day thing, what that's saying in many different ways, we can talk about more in detail later, but Jesus is one man and yet he is 100% God and 100% man. This is a mystery. But friends, I've already lost some of you, but I want you to hear this. This is not just some ivory tower like doctrine that people should think about and be interested in. This is immensely practical, immensely practical. If in fact, the gospel hinges on it. You see, if Jesus is not God, he doesn't have the power or authority to save anyone. If Jesus is not God, he does not have the power or authority to save anyone. If Jesus is not man, he doesn't have the right to represent humanity and apply that salvation to us. G.I. Williamson wrote, the savior that I must have is the savior who is able to reach me and to reach God. And this Christ alone can do. This is the mystery of the incarnation, that in the one person of Jesus, we have God and man being reconciled. Through his blood, we are reconciled in what he has done and what he accomplishes. So friends, if you hear nothing else that I say this morning, I want you to hear this. Because Jesus is God, he can save. Because Jesus is man, he can save me. Because Jesus is God, he can save. Because Jesus is man, he can save me. I wanted to put up a whole uh, a quote from Romans 5 to talk about this, and then I realized it would be the entire chapter. So go read that this afternoon. Okay, Joe, I'm tracking with you so far, but when I read this story, it sounds an awful lot like Jesus disobeyed his parents. Is that true? If you, we just read this story. You just saw it. You just heard it. Verse 43, after, um, so let's talk about it. In verse 43, after the days of the feast were over, so that means Mary and Joseph, they stayed the whole seven days, probably. They stayed the whole seven days, which is a very expensive thing to do, and they are a poor young couple with a baby, and they stayed the whole time. They usually traveled in caravans. Mary or excuse me, the women and the children would travel in the front and the men would travel behind them and they would be separated. So you can just imagine what happened, right? Joseph is sitting there or walking in the caravan and he doesn't see Jesus. Where's Jesus? Oh, he's up with Mary and the other kids because he's 12 years old. He's a kid. What is Mary thinking? Well, Mary, uh, she looks around, doesn't see Jesus. Oh, he's back with Joseph, with the other men, because he's 12 years old. He's learning how to be a man, what that means. So he's back there. So you see why they travel a whole day, one day, and they get to the end of the day. They ask around, hey, have you seen Jesus? Have you seen Jesus? No, we don't see Jesus. if, If you're a parent in this room, you know your anxiety went from zero to 150 right then. Okay, I don't see my child. Okay, what are we gonna do? Turn it around, people. Turn it around. So they turn. I don't know if they turned the whole caravan around, but Mary and Joseph, at least, turned around and they traveled another whole day. The second day, they traveled a whole other day to get back to Jerusalem. What would that of trip have been like? Imagine if it was just Mary and Joseph, just Mary and Joseph. Do you think there was any like blaming going on at that point? Why do you 
What? You were supposed to be in charge of Jesus. What happened? What happened? Why, why isn't I here? Anxiety is ramping up to 300. They finally get to Jerusalem and they look around on the third day and they see and they find, um, they find Jesus. In verse 48, when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. You, I mean, you can hear and read the anxiety off the page from Mary. She is undone. She is undone by what's happened. Her anxiety is ramped up. Um, if you're a parent, you know what this looks like. Uh, my son loves to play basketball. And so he has played basketball for a few years and is, is very good. But he actually ha- now has a, uh, a stress fracture in his back, has to wear a brace, and can't play basketball for like six weeks. In fact, can't do anything, which is super fun over a two-week Christmas break when you can't do anything. Um, and so couldn't do anything, can't do anything. The, his last game, before we knew he was going to get the brace, before we knew he was going to go on this six-week sabbatical from any activity, it's his last game. He's playing in, playing in the game. He's doing really well. And all of a sudden, he hits another kid, and blood is involved, starts gushing from his nose. He leaves, and the coach or one of the coach's assistants leaves the gym and goes out into the hallway. And so Blair and I are sitting there like, okay, what just happened? Um, and I am clueless about many things, and so I'm just I'm like, I don't know. We'll just see what happens. Blair, being a good mother, was like, I'm going to go check on my son. Blood was involved, and he left. It was kind of a big deal. So she left, and I'm sitting next to my good friend, Dr. Trey Wickham. He's sitting right there, and we're watching the rest of the game. Blair leaves. She's out for like a minute or two, and then she comes back in, opens the gym door, and she, and she like points and says, I'm like, not you, the doctor. And so... So, if you're a parent, you understand this. From the seconds, the milliseconds it took for my friend, the doctor, to stand up and walk, even before he was past me, I had already thought, my son has an incurable disease and he's going to die. <laughs> I, this, this is where I immediately went. He is going to... I, I, I mean, my anxiety went from zero to a thousand quickly, immediately. Thankfully, I'm wise enough to just hold my anxiety into myself. I'm not, okay, I'm just going to, you know, let them go do their thing. Okay. I finally went over there and reconciled. He's just, he had a broken nose. He's, he's fine now. He has to do nose PT. Are you still doing that? Nose PT. That's a serious thing. You like, anyway, my anxiety was ramping up. Anxiety is camouflaged fear. That's what that is. Anxiety is camouflaged fear. We all have it. Every single one of us has anxiety. Whether you're a parent or a kid or anybody, you have anxiety. Whatever you're anxious about, whatever you're fearful about, it's right there. It's just on the outside of your life maybe, but the minute it creeps in, the minute it steps in, you're undone. That might have been Mary and Joseph at this point. Were Mary and Joseph right to be anxious and to scold Jesus? Probably. They probably were right to be anxious. Probably. 
If I was them, I would be. In our parenting class, which we do once a month um, uh, over in the chapel, and we'll do it again next week. Uh, yeah, next week at, during the first service, we'll be in the chapel uh, talking about parenting. And one of the things that we talked about last time, because in preparation for the grand, of, the grand thing of Christmas, is we talked about the anxious presence. The anxious presence. That is the person in your life that exudes anxiety. They suck life out of you. They walk into a room. You can feel the life being sucked towards them, maybe. You see the number on their phone and your chest falls. You get on the edge whenever they're, they're around. You tense up even when their name is mentioned. All of you can know who I'm talking about, that person in your life. If you don't know who I'm talking about, it's, it's probably because you are the anxious presence. Do some, do some repentance about that. These people ooze anxiety. Helicopter parents. But not just helicopter parents, but over ser- overly serious parents. You want to know where your anxiety meter is? All of us have anxiety. Where your anxiety meter is, just imagine what life is like in a traffic jam. And you see that one lane going by. Just yesterday, my wife and I were in a store buying something and we were in line and there were three registers to check out and it was one line and you go to each register that you go to and I, you know and it wasn't that long of a line but it was long enough for me to determine which one to go to and which one not to go to like okay that person's really slow and that person has a whole lot of items but you're, you're sort of at the mercy of where you are in the line and so where do we end up going we ended up going to the really slow line um, but my anxiety is ramped up whenever I get into situations like that. Mary and Joseph had three days of anxiety and grief over what happened to Jesus. They had real injury in their life. What happened to Jesus? And the moment they find Jesus, what is he doing? Sitting there, learning, teaching, sitting, listening, talking to people. He doesn't have anxiety. And Mary and Joseph, I'm sure, are like, why are you not as upset as I am, Jesus? I am really upset. And why are you not upset? But I hope you see in that situation, Mary's anxiety is ramped up to a thousand. Jesus' response is not to be disrespectful to her, but in many ways to calm her down. Mary and Joseph were probably right to be anxious to a certain degree. But Jesus was taking responsibility for his own actions. His ex- the, the expectation for Jewish boys at this age was to start taking responsibility for your own actions. And we know, we read in verse 51, right after this in- instance, what does Jesus do? He obeys his parents and follows and goes back to Nazareth. The son of God probably should learn with the great men teaching in the temple. Does Jesus stay in Jerusalem? No, he obeys his parents and follows and honors them and goes back to Nazareth. This is about Jesus taking responsibility for his mission as the Messiah on earth. The main point with Mary and and Jesus and the temple is not what Jesus is doing, but it's where he is. Where is Jesus? He's in the temple. And what does Jesus say? Verse 49, he said to them, 
why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? When you think of a child as Jesus, when, when you think of Jesus as a child, we think often of him being born, him just passively sitting there in a in straw with animals all around him. And then we see him as a man doing his mission. The very first instance where Jesus is actively doing something, he goes to his father's house. The very first time in the Bible we read about Jesus doing anything uh, as, a, as an independent human, he's going to the temple, to the father's house. N.T. Wright wrote, Judaism already had a massive incarnational symbol, the temple. The temple is that place where Jesus would return 20, year, 20 or so years later and say, stop selling things all around here. You're messing up my father's house. This is the, this is the same place. Jesus, as our great high priest, begins his ministry here, growing at the divine human intersection of the temple. Jesus knew what he was doing. He was tenacious. He was singularly focused on the mission that God, his father, had given him. Even as a child, he actively responded in his mission to obey and to be in the matters of his father. If you read the Gospel of Luke, you see Jesus had a lot of musts. He had a lot of musts in his life. He must preach. I must suffer. I must go on my way. I must stay with you tonight, Zacchaeus. I must be delivered up, crucified, rise again. I must suffer their things and enter into glory. I must fulfill all Old Testament prophecies. And here we see in this situation, what's his first must? I must be in my father's house. I must be in my father's house. In a way, when we read this episode, we are to see that the baby who is laying in the manger is God, is man, and is tenacious in his mission, the gospel, to redeem his people. So what can you and I learn from this story? What can you and I learn from this instance of God, of Jesus working as, an, as the incarnated God? I want us to see first the beauty and mystery of the incarnation. And we've already talked about that. Again, if you want to talk more in depth about that, I would love to do that. But if you should see the beauty and mystery of the incarnation, you and I can do, we can go in either direction. You and I could say, oh, Joe, that's so great that you get to think about hypostatic union, but I'm not going to worry about that at all. Don't just take things by blind faith. Think about this stuff. Take your Bible, read it, and think about it. Don't go in that direction of never thinking about these things. But also don't go in the other direction of trying to mine the mysteries of God so much so that you get lost. Don't do that. Be wise. Find that balance. But more important than even being captivated by the beauty and mystery of the incarnation, don't lose sight of why. Don't lose sight of why Jesus came as God, as man. Jesus, who is God, became man for you. The God of the universe became man for you to redeem a people, to rescue a people from a prison of our own making. I want us to see today the tenacity of Jesus in his mission, singularly focused. Jesus Christ, the son of God, the son of man is unstoppable. He is unstoppable. 
There are things in our lives that we think are beyond the power of God. That's not true. Jesus, when he sets his sights on something, is unstoppable. He's tenacious. He must, by his internal motivation and by his submission to the Father, bring all things to fruition. He is unstoppable. So friends, we worship an unstoppable God. We don't worship a weak God. We worship an unstoppable, tenacious God. As we come to this table today, we need to remember the unstoppable